There are times in all of our lives in which we say, I can't believe what I've done. There have been numerous times over the course of my ministry in which somebody has sat across the desk from me and there's been an affair on his part or there's been uh, she's betrayed a friend or gossiped about a friend or hurt someone. And they sit there and they say, Cody, I would have never thought I could have done such a thing as that. I never would have thought I was even capable of doing that. But here I am, and I, I did I can't believe what I've done. I don't even have to go back and talk about people that I've talked with. I can look in the mirror and tell you that's true. That over the course of my week, I can have these ups and downs that are, are so high, and yet these downs that are so low, and I can think, how in the world can me, I, I'm a pastor I can't believe what I just did. I can't believe what I just said to my wife. I can't believe what I just thought about that person. I can't believe my own capacity for bad. The truth is, is all of us, if we're honest, we know that we have a capacity for bad that is scary, don't we? We have a capacity for, for wickedness, a capacity for evil, a capacity to do things that are negative, to do things that are, are wrong, that is outright terrifying. And this morning, what we're going to do is we open up God's Word. What we're going to see is even in the lives of Jesus' 11 disciples, we know, we know at this point that Jesus has a betrayer among us. We've already seen in Judas' life that Judas is a betrayer. But we know that even among Jesus' 11 remaining disciples, that even they have capacity for remarkable bad the presence of God. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 26 as we see and learn from these disciples. So we're going to see their capacity for bad, and at the same time, we're going to see Jesus' commitment to them to restore them, to work in their life, God's sovereignty in their life, to hold fast to them and to enable them to persevere even in light of their capacity to unfaithfulness. So Matthew chapter 26, Matthew chapter 26. We're going to begin in verse 30. If you get there, would you stand with me as we read God's word together? Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 30. God's word says, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word today. You may be seated. So it's Thursday evening. Jesus and his disciples have just celebrated their final Passover meal together. The final Passover that they will have and share together as they live together on earth. 
And if you'll remember back to last week, during this final Passover, Jesus has pre-explained what is about to take place in the hours ahead. Jesus has pre-explained to them the suffering that is ahead, the, the cross in detail as to what's going on. And Jesus, with that pre-explanation, has, giving, has given powerful new symbolism to that Passover meal, a meal that we still celebrate today called the Lord's Supper, a meal that is to bring a time of recommitment and repentance and renewal in the life of the Christian. But it says at the conclusion of that meal that they sang a hymn before they went out. Now, in the Passover, they typically, the Jews after the second cup, over the course of the Passover, they would sing Psalms 113 through 118. Those are called the Hallel Psalms, okay? So after the, remember last week we talked about how there are the four cups during the Passover. So after the second cup, they would sing Psalms 113 and 114. And then after the fourth cup, they would sing Psalms 115 through 118. And so that's the Psalms that we have Jesus here singing. We have him at the completion of the Passover, at the completion of the Lord's Supper here. He's singing Psalms 114 through 118, or 115 through 118. Now the Hallel Psalms, what the word Hallel means, that's the Hebrew word for praise. Now, and the reason that these songs were called praise, uh, Hallel Psalms is they were literally hymns or psalms of praise that were given to God. And they gave them on the Passover because in the eye of the Hebrew, in the eye of the Jew, there was nothing that was more praiseworthy than God's deliverance out of Egypt and into the promised land. There was nothing that was more praiseworthy than they had ever experienced than God's sovereign deliverance as he had brought them and passed over them with the angel of death and parted the, de the, the Red Sea and brought them into the wilderness and had provided for them so faithfully and protected for them so powerfully. And so every year the, the, the people of God would sing to God the same praises. Now think about that. Think about that. This is the night, this is the night that Jesus will be betrayed. And he praises God. This is the, just hours before Jesus is to be scourged and he praises God. This is just hours before he will stand before Pilate as Pilate washes his hands and the crowd shouts, crucify him, crucify him. And he praises God. This is just hours before the crown of thorns will be pressed upon his brow, the nails driven through his hands and his feet, and, God, and he praises God. This is just hours before the, the spear will be thrust into his side and the spit and blood running down his body. And here is the Son of Man praising God. You see, it's a powerful thing when you consider that Jesus sang, isn't it? It's a powerful thing when you consider that here it is, the Son of God, and He is singing hymns of worship to God. It blows out of the water any kind of stereotype that we have that singing is effeminate in any way. Here it is, the most masculine men to have ever walked on the earth singing with valor and courage on the night of His betrayal and the hours before His slaughter. And He's lifting up His voice with songs of praise to God Almighty. Praise the One who's 
going to slay me. These are some of the words that he would have sang that night. Out of my distress I call on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side and I will not fear. What can a man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. See, brothers and sisters, on the night of his agony, on the night of his despair, here is the Son of Man praising the sovereignty of God. Because Jesus understands something that every single one of us must understand. That even in our worst moment, even when our lives are more difficult, God is not less sovereign. Even when our lives are more difficult, God is not less sovereign. There was no more time in his life in which his life was more difficult than this one. As he sweat great drops of blood that night, as he went into the Garden of Gethsemane, and he sought the face of God, and he asked if the cup could pass over him, and he was told that there was no other way. He sought the face of God, and it was difficult, and it was hard, and yet the sovereignty of God was no less. As he stood before the people of God, and they mocked him, and they ridiculed him, and they said, If you are the Son of God, say so. And yet, he uttered not a word. His life had never been more difficult, and yet God had never been more sovereign. As he was laying on the cross, and the nails were being driven through his hands and through his feet, he was at the same time restraining legions of angels, warriors in heaven, from coming and smiting all of the earth. His life had never been more difficult, and yet at the very same time, God had never been more sovereign. Brothers and sisters, can I tell you the same thing is true in your life? The same thing is true in your life. Right now may be the most difficult time in your life. Right now may be like my mom. My mom this morning is at UAB and she had her third consecutive emergency eye surgery in, this, in three weeks. And right now she's not sure if she's ever going to see out of that eye again and she's wondering what in the world is happening. But just because her life is more difficult doesn't mean that God is less sovereign. Today, you may be wondering if you're fixing to have to bury somebody that you love. You may be having to go this afternoon to the bedside of your most beloved family member, a spouse, a husband, a wife, a mom, a dad. And you may sit there and weep at their bedside and wonder, God, how can this be? But just because your life is more difficult doesn't mean that God is less sovereign. No, brothers and sisters, what we learn from the Son of Man Himself is that it's in those moments in which it is most difficult. It is in those moments in which we find ourselves unable to raise our hands in praise that God Himself must be seated upon His throne. He must be reigning with, over all of creation with sovereign goodness and sovereign grace and sovereign power because that is... That is the hope that we have. That is what recalibrates and resets our hearts. That is what gives us assurance that not one ounce of difficulty or suffering goes without purpose. As we look to the Son of Man praising God, singing in the midst of His agony, we can know that when our lives are more, most difficult, God is not less sovereign. 
He goes and Jesus begins and he retreats to a place that he often goes. We often see over the course of Jesus' ministry that as things get kind of hectic and things get kind of chaotic, that Jesus doesn't do what we do. What do we do? When things get chaotic and things get get hectic, we kind of double down and we kind of really focus on our productivity and efficiency plans and we really try to like work some extra hours and get to the office a few minutes early and stay a few minutes late, but Jesus doesn't do that. What Jesus does is Jesus retreats to, so, to a place of solitude. What Jesus does as life begins to get chaotic and life begins to get busier is Jesus actually begins to get slower and Jesus begins to retreat and get alone with God the Father. And so he goes to a place here that he often goes and he begins to head to the, to the Mount of Olives which must have been a retreat for the Son of God. A place that he often went to pray and to, to teach and to, to study the scriptures. A place that, that he found great comfort. And as he is on his way to the Mount of Olives with his disciples, the words that he had for them must have cut them like a knife. You can imagine the tension that's among the disciples that day, right? They've been there and they've, they've had this intense night at the, at the Last Supper. This intense night when Jesus has basically said, we're not going to be eating like this ever again. I'm, I'm going to die. Oh, and by the way, the reason that I'm going to die is that one of you is going to turn me over. One of you is going to turn me in. One of you is going to bring my executioners to my doorstep. So you can imagine that everybody is a bit on edge. You can imagine that everybody is a little bit edgy, right? And what does Jesus say? Oh, you may not be the one that betrays me. You may not be the one that's going to bring in the executioners, but every single one of you, you're going to deny me. Every single one of you, you're going to abandon me. As I, as I hang up on the cross, gasping for air, as I hang up on the cross, suffocating in my own blood for your salvation, for your righteousness, for your inheritance, you're going to pretend like you don't even know me. You're going to tell people that I'm a stranger to you. You're going to deny that you love me. Deny that you like me. Deny that you've walked with me. Deny that you even know me. Can you imagine? Can you imagine being one of his disciples and you've just had your feet washed by the Son of God? You've just had your feet washed by him. And you've just sat there and, and wept with him. He tells you, you're fixing to betray me. You're fixing, or you're fixing to abandon me. It'd be like a knife through the heart, wouldn't it? It, it, it must have absolutely have stunned Jesus' disciples. And what's even more startling is the reason that Jesus gives that they're going to betray him. Jesus says that you're all going to fall away because of me. Because of me. And that's kind of a strange statement, isn't it? You're going to fall away because of me. Now, what are we to understand that to mean? Now, James tells us in, uh, in his epistle that God cannot tempt us. That, that, that it, is, it is 
unbiblical. It is, it is theologically incorrect for us to ever say that God has tempted anyone. God never tempts us to sin, so we cannot say that there any direct sense that Jesus has forced them directly to, to fall away or tempted them to fall away and abandon them. So, so he's talking in an indirect sense. So this is what Jesus is saying. That in that night, in the night of my passion, in the night that I sat, hang on that cross and gasp for the air, on the night as I sat, hang there and I pray for the men that nailed me to the cross, as I hang there and I satisfy the wrath of God on your behalf, as I hang there and blood trickles down my face, as I hang there and my mother weeps at my feet, as I hang there for your good and my Father's glory, as I hang there, you will determine that loving me just calls too much you will determine that to be one of my disciples and to go where I'm going and to be who I'm calling you to be and to do what I'm calling you to do is just too expensive it's just too costly and so because of me because of the cost of going where I'm going and doing what I'm calling you to do because of the of the hardship and the shame and the ridicule and the pain and the potential for death that it invites into your life to be associated with me, you are going to publicly deny me every opportunity that you get. You see, Jesus had called every single one of them. He had told them, if you'll remember back in Matthew chapter 16, he had said, if, if, you, if anyone would come after me, let him take, deny himself, take up his cross and follow me, right? He had told them. He had told them that if you're going to be one of my disciples, if you're going to go where I'm going, that it's going to, have to, requ it's going to require of you a literal willingness to die. It's, I'm going to the cross. I'm going to a place of death. I'm going to a place of hardship. I'm going to a place of agony. And if you're going to be my disciple, count the cost. If you're going to go where I'm going, it's going to be expensive. If you're going to go where I'm going, brother is going to turn against brother. Child is going to turn against father. Father is going to turn against child. Remember Matthew 10? If you're going to go where I'm going, it's going to be expensive. If you're going to be, be my disciple, it's going to cost you everything. And here are the disciples, and it's the moment of truth. Here are the disciples. And it's the moment that they've been waiting for over the entirety of Jesus' ministry. It's their moment to bear the cross. It's their moment to take up their cross and to go where Jesus has went. And what do they do? They fail the test. They fail the test. What they decide to do is they have to go into self-preservation mode. They go into self-preservation mode. And any time we as disciples of Jesus go into self-preservation self-preservation mode, we stop following Jesus. We stop following Jesus. Remember what Jesus said? Jesus said anyone who tries to save his life will lose it, but anyone who loses his life will save it. Anyone who seeks to finish first will finish last. Anyone who seeks to finish last will finish first. That if you want to be where I'm going, the economy of heaven is reversed, the economy of earth. That if you want to pass over the judgment of man, you will fail the judgment of God. And if you want to pass the judgment of God, you will fail the judgment of man. And in the night of Christ's passion, the disciples of Jesus will seek to find the approval of man. And in finding the approval of man, they will fail the approval of God. This morning, whose approval are you seeking? 
this morning, what life are you preserving? What judgment are you seeking to pass? Are you living trying to preserve this life? Are you living trying to maximize what you can have here? Are you living trying to finish first on earth? Because if you are preserving this life, you will lose the next life. If you are preserving now, you will lose forever. If you are finishing first here, you will finish last there. I wonder, brothers and sisters, if Jesus were here and he were among us, if he might look and he might say, You are denying me. You are abandoning me. As often as you go to Honda, as often as you go to White Plains High School and Heflin High School, as often as you go to the places that you work and the homes that you live, as often as you leave the doors of the church, you are going into self-preservation mode and you begin to abandon me and to live for the approval of man and the success of this world and you forsake the call that I've placed on your life. Are you willing to come and die? Are you willing to take up your cross and follow me? Jesus says something to them that must have been strange. He does something that, that, that must have caught them off guard. He, he quotes something. Remember in, in Matthew, if you've been, been tracking with us for a long time, in Matthew, uh, he, he, remember Matthew is a, is a Jewish man writing to a largely Jewish audience, and so he's, he's all the time quoting from the Old Testament. And that, and that in and of itself, anytime you hear a preacher begin to discredit the Old Testament, you can know that is a false preacher, that is a, a false teacher, because the New Testament is filled with teachers and preachers that are quoting the Old Testament, all right? And so unless those guys are off, unless, the, unless Matthew is a false teacher and preacher, then, then we got a, we got a different issue, right? All right? So, so Matthew is all the time going back, and he's quoting the, the Old Testament, and that's what he does right here. He quotes from, from the second to, uh, to last of our Old Testament prophets, the, uh, the, the, one of the minor prophets, a man by the name of Zechariah. He quotes from Zechariah chapter 13, and, he, and it's a strange quote. That, that's why I say that it's strange. It's a strange quote because he says that, that I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. All right? So if you go to Zechariah chapter 13, and I'm, I'm just going to go out on a limb and say you guys aren't super familiar with the book of Zechariah. Um, if you go to Zechariah chapter 13, it, it's actually talking about God taking the sword himself and running through, uh, impaling one of his own prophets. Now you have one of his, his own prophets that is proven to be unfaithful. And, that own, his, and so God takes and he kills his own prophet. And then he takes all of his people and his people, they, they're scattered because they've been following after this, this wrong prophet. And when God kills this false prophet, Two-thirds of God's own people are, are, are massacred. And one-third of the people are able to kind of survive through this horrible time of tribulation. And he says that they are like gold and silver, purified through the flame. And that they're a remnant that God saves. And they're actually better off for it. That they become a more purified and, and stronger remnant as a result. And so here's what Jesus is saying. Zechariah doesn't read as though it's messianic. That, that is, it, it, when, you, when you read it at first glance, if you're just reading through the Old Testament and you come to Zechariah 13, you don't automatically think, well, that's obviously talking about the Christ that is to come, the Messiah that is to come. But Jesus applies it that way. And so what Jesus says is that 
He is the prophet that God is going to kill. He is the one. He is the prophet of God. He is not an unfaithful prophet, but he is the prophet that God is going to run through by his own sword. And so God is going to kill his own son by his own sword. And when God runs through his own son with his own sword, his disciples, the earthly disciples of Jesus, are going to scatter like cockroaches in a light. Again, what God is going to do. What God is going to do is He's going to bring them back together. He's going to use this time of denial. He's going to use this time of abandonment because He is sovereign and because He is strong and because He is gracious and merciful and good and powerful and mighty. He's going to bring them back together and He's going to bring them back together stronger than ever, better than ever, purer than ever, kinder than ever. And He's going to bring them back together and He's going to hold them together as a remnant that He is going to preserve forever. See, he's given hope to these disciples. He's given hope to these disciples. Remember how he started? God is not less sovereign because your life is more difficult, right? Remember how that's how we started? Here's what he's saying. Your life is going to be more difficult. As a matter of fact, your life is going to be so difficult that you're going to fall away. Your life is going to be so difficult that you're going to count the cost and your spine is going to become, become, become wobbly like rubber and you're going to cave in like a coward. You're, you're, you're going to feel just the weakness of your own courage. You're going you're gonna to feel just the, just the impotence of your own strength. You're going to feel the frailty of your own faith. You're going to feel the wimpiness of your own strength. But guess what? God is still sovereign. God is still sovereign. And when I told you that you would reign with me in the thrones of heaven forever, I meant it. And when I told you that I was going to prepare a place for you forever that you would enjoy, I meant it. And so I am going away and you are going to fall away and you are going to abandon me. Something that you can't even conceive of right now. You're going to face a persecution that is unlike anything that you can ever know. But even in spite of your unfaithfulness, even in spite of your frailty, even in spite of your cowardice, even in spite of your weakness, I am going to use all of your weakness all of your wickedness to purify you like gold and silver in the fire to bring you together by my sovereign grace and my sovereign goodness so that I can hold you together forever and show you how great and powerful and wonderful I am so right now brothers and sisters you sing you see this week this very week I have felt the wimpiness of my strength this week, I have felt the frailty of my faith. I'm sure there are some of you that you're here, and this very week, you have fallen away. And you've wondered, how could God love me? How in the world could I continue on? How could I teach as I do? How could I preach as I do? How can I, how can I hold this standard for my family as I do? How can I share my faith as I do? How can I go on missions as I do? How can I do all of these things that I do? How can I continue to hold these things on when I am so weak and I am such a coward and I have so much sin in my life? And it's because God is kind and sovereign, brothers and sisters. It's because God is kind and sovereign. And God, in spite of you, is going to use 
you. And he's going to bring your weakness and your wickedness. He's going to bring your frailty and your wimpiness. And he's going to take it in the midst of his sovereign flame and refine you like gold in the fire and bring you together and hold you up before all of creation and say, look at what I can do. Look at my glory. Look at my remnant. Look at my church. They are weak, but I am strong. And I have made a promise to them through my son, Jesus Christ. And they will be with me forever. Brothers and sisters, your God is sovereign even when your life is hard, even when your life is unfaithful. God is sovereign and he holds you together. You see, you see, as we sit here, what does Jesus say next? He says, I'm going to be raised up. I'm going to be raised up. He says, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. I like how he says it. He, he says it almost like an offhand, right? Like, like, like an afterthought, right? He doesn't even say, hey, guys, don't forget I'm going to be resurrected. He just says it like, he just, like, like a passing comment. Like he, he goes through all this stuff, like you're going to fall away, you're going to, but, but afterward, you know, like, like, like I almost hear him like being anticlimactic here, right? Like, but after I'm raised up, I'm going to go before you to Galilee. Like, hey guys, you remember we're going to meet after this, right? <laughs> like, like you remember, after you fall away, after I die a torturous, gruesome death, after I am nailed up publicly, after I suffocate on the cross, after I am wrapped up in the grave cloth, after I am sealed in a tomb, after I am, de- I am defended by Roman centurions, after the angels put them to sleep, roll away the tomb, I'm going to walk out and we're going to hang out in Galilee. Don't forget about all of that. Think about what's happening. Here is Jesus. Jesus is in his most lowly moment. I mean, like, this is rock-bottom life for Jesus. Jesus is here, and he's talking to his disciples who are going to be unfaithful to him, and he knows it. He knows that Peter is going to deny him three times before the rooster crows. He knows it. He knows that Judas is about to hand him over to his betrayers. He knows that Thomas is going to doubt him. He knows that all of the other disciples are going to abandon him. He knows all of this. And what does Jesus do during this time? He encourages the disciples. He encourages the disciples. What would you do with that information? What would you do with that information? If you were headed to your torture... If you were headed to your death and you were to do it for the sake of your followers and you knew at the very same time that your followers were going to leave you high and dry, what would you do with that information? Would you say, hey, by the way, guys, I really want you to be encouraged? This is exactly what Jesus does. Brothers and sisters, do you see the beauty of the cross? Do you see the beauty of the cross-shaped life? See, this is the essence of grace. This is the essence of grace. That you bear one another's cross for one another's good at great expense of yourself. That you seek someone else's good at your own expense. In Iron City, this is who we must be. 
We must deny ourselves, take up our cross, and go in the likeness of Christ. Go in the likeness of the cross. Go in grace. We must leave behind lives of self-preservation and embrace lives in the shape of a cross. We must leave behind lives of comfort in our reputation so that we might seek Christ's glory in the world's redemption. We must let love, let Let's love the world that hates us. Let's be generous to the ones who steal from us. Let's speak kindly to the ones that slander us. Let's be gentle with the ones who are harsh with us. Let's be patient with those who attempt to frustrate us. Let's embrace those who reject us. That is the beauty of the cross. That is the nature of grace. And that is the image of Christ. You see... Jesus is painting a picture for his disciples. He's painting a picture for his disciples of who they are to be. He's painting an image of his disciples of the church that he is building. See, all of these disciples are the very same ones that Jesus will use to begin the church in the book of Acts that is still going today and still baptizing millions every year. It is the same church, and it is because Christ built it on grace, and Christ built it on the cross that is bore as someone else's, for someone else's good at your own expense. It's more than Peter can bear. And Peter always quick to speak. He speaks up and he says, Jesus, if I have to die, if I have to lay down my life, I will die before I let you, before I deny you. If you're hanging on the cross and, some, and, a, and a soldier comes up to me and, says, and puts a, a sword to my throat and says it is you or me, I'm going down with you. Jesus looks back to Peter and says, Peter, when a little girl asks you whether or not you know me, you will flat out deny me altogether. Can you imagine the chill that must have went down Peter's spine? You see, I think Peter is like a lot of us. Peter in this moment had a lot of good intentions. Peter had good motives. He had good desires. He had no follow-through. And brothers and sisters, your intentions do not portray the purity of your heart. Your follow-through does. So often we get to our life and we say, I can't believe I did that. That's not what I intended. That's not what is in my heart. That is not my intentions. But your intentions don't portray your heart. Your follow-through does. Can I ask you something? Are you ready to stand before God with nothing more than your intentions? You intend to go on mission. You intend to disciple your children. You intend to share your faith. You intend to give generously. You intend to live sacrificially. You intend to spend time in God's word. You intend to seek God's face in prayer. You intend, you intend, you intend, but you have no follow-through. Does your follow-through say that you love God? This morning, this morning, what would you say? 
if Jesus came to you and said, you're going to deny me. You know, that's not in my heart. And Jesus were to say to you, it's not about your intentions. It's about your follow-through. What does the follow-through say in your life? Let's pray